And get ready here for the message. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you that we can glorify you, that we can lift you up. Be with us as we look at your word, guide and lead us in what you'd have us to learn from this. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Nahum chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, I think it's 452, or you can find it by using your concordance, <laughs> your context. But Nahum chapter 2, starting in verse 1. He that dashes in pieces is come up before your face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make your loins strong, fortify your power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob and the excellency of Isaiah, for the emptiers have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red, the valiant men are scarlet. The chariots shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir trees shall be terribly shaken. The chariots shall rage in the streets, and they shall jostle one against one another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches, they shall run like lightnings. He shall recall his worthies, he shall, they shall stumble in their walk, they shall make haste to the wall, therefore, to defend, and the defense shall be prepared. The gates of the river shall be opened, the palace be dissolved, and Huzbazab shall be led away captive. She shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as with the voice of doves, tapering upon their breast. But Nineveh of old, like the pool of water, yet they shall flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take you the spoil of silver, take you the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the stores of the glory and all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste, and the heart melts. The knees smite together, and much pain is in all the loins and the faces of them that gather blackness. We're looking at this, and we've been talking about Nahum, and Nahum's prophecy is against Nineveh. And, we, and we'll get to this point where somebody says, well, what do we want to study about Nineveh's destruction for? We'll try to bring this to some you know, day-to-day point. But Nahum's preaching against Nineveh. And remember, we've said Nineveh's been a wicked city. And we talked about the last couple of weeks, God's patience in Nineveh. Because we remember Nineveh was preached at by Jonah, and they repented. Nahum preaches 150 years later, and he tells them, you're going to be destroyed this time they don't repent, and it's going to be another 50 years after Nahum preaches to them that they're going to be destroyed. But we've been looking at God's patience and how patient he is with us. And many times we get impatient. We go, God, we just want you to do something now, you know, especially if it's with somebody else. <laughs> we like him to be patient with us, <laughs> but we don't always look at him to be patient with others. And God is patient to the point where you know, sometimes we think he's really, really slow. Jesus is coming back soon. He said that 2,000 years ago. Now, from God's point of view, 2,000 years is nothing and is soon. One thing we do know is we are closer to his return today than we were yesterday. <laughs> and every day that it comes, we're closer to it. Nineveh was going to be the same way. Oh, Jonah preached to us, you know, nothing happened. Now, Nahum's preaching to us, nothing's happening. You know, Noah, as he was building an ark, preached for 120 years that God's judgment was coming, and everybody's going, oh, yeah. You know, you can picture it, they're going, hey, that crazy net over there, he's building a great big boat in the middle of the plain, there's no water anywhere near. 
He keeps telling us God's going to destroy us. He's been telling us that for 100 and, 119 years and 11, 11 months and 30, 30, uh, 29 days. You know, where, where, where's this destruction? You know, uh, we need to be careful about this. When God says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. And one of the things I've been thinking about is how much do we believe and trust God? You know, when God says that all things work together for good, when I'm going through hard times, do I believe that God told the truth? When God says that we're going to be rewarded in heaven, do we truly believe that we're going to be rewarded in heaven? And how does it affect our life? Many of it was affected like, well, we don't care. <laughs> we're not repenting. And this is what God is telling them. God told them exactly what he was going to do, how he was going to do it in, in the book of Nahum. And remember, on our introduction, we said that his description was so accurate that everybody accused the book of being written after the fact. They go, it had to be written after the fact because it was all so accurate. And this is the one thing about the Bible that is, is good for us. When God says something, it's going to be true. It is going to be exactly the way he said. When Jesus was born, it was exactly the way he said. He was going to be from Nazareth, be born in Bethlehem, spend time in Egypt, <laughs> and be born of a virgin, and the children were going to be killed, and all these other things that were going to be true, and it happened just the way God said. And we want to be able to look at this. When God says something, do we trust him? Do we fully place our trust in God? And this is very important for us. Because when we have a hard time, and you'll notice that usually when I, when I say bad things are happening to us, I will say something like, when it seems like bad things are happening to us. Because from our perspective, they're bad. Our feelings say they're bad. But the truth is, God says, I've got a plan. And his plan is going to work. And as long as we hold on to his plan, you know, I'm not going to say you're going to be happy in everything that happens to you. Don't get me wrong. We're, you know, it's hard. It is hard to go through hard times. When you fall down and break, <clears throat> and break a bone and you can't get around, that's not a good time. Let's see if I can talk better. <laughs> uh, when somebody in your family is hurt or dies, it's not a good time. But when we hold on to God saying, I've got a plan, we can get through it. We know God, I know, I know you've got a plan. And you can say just what I tell God. God, I don't understand it, but I'm going to trust. I don't understand what you're doing. doesn't necessarily make it 100% easy, but at least you're saying, I've got a, I've got a hope. I've got a faith. And I'm, got, I'm grabbing onto it with all I've got. Now, I picture somebody hanging on at the bottom of a rope. You know, and there's a poster I saw once a time. That go, when you get to the end of the rope, tie a knot and hold on. <laughs> Sometimes that's all we can do with God. God, my, my knot at the bottom of the rope is your promise that it's going to be for good. And we need to be able to hold on to that rope and say, God, I trust you. I trust you. This is what salvation is all about. I trust God that Jesus' sacrifice was enough to get me into heaven when I confess my sins and accept him in my, in my heart. If I don't, then I don't have really saving faith. Because if I'm putting my hope on anything else, I'm not agreeing with the word of God. If I put my hope in God, I've got to just do enough good things. And, you know, and we talk about it here, and we totally believe that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. There are churches that put a whole bunch of works. You know, well, you've got to get saved by grace, but then you've got to do all these other things. And every once in a while, I hear some pastor on the radio or the TV say that kind of stuff. And it's like, you guys better read your Bible. 
And I've shared with you, yes, we, are we going to do good things when we get saved? Of course we are. Why are we doing it? Not to please God, but because he's done so much for us, we want to serve him. We want to do good things. You know, we picture this uh, as when somebody gets married and they really love their spouse, you know, do you give, do you take them out to, you know, do I take my wife out to dinner just because I have to? You know, if I don't take her out, it's going to be a problem. No, I take her out because I want to take her out. You know, and this is, this is something that's funny, you know, we get to the place, especially when somebody's been married a long time, and you buy candy or roses or take your wife out and it's like, oh, what'd you do? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I just still love my wife and I want to do something nice for her. That should be our attitude with God. God, thank you for all that you've done for me. How can I serve you? you know, God gives us everything. You know, he gives us our finances. He gives us the ability to have a job. He gives us the ability to, to survive. Gives us air to wake up to every morning. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, for people who have trouble breathing, that's a big deal. <laughs> Just having enough air to breathe is a big deal for some people. Gives us the strength to get out of bed. There's people who don't have the strength to get out of bed. And we need to be able to say, God, thank you. I want to turn over to you part of what you've given me. And this is what's very important. In Nineveh, they're not doing this. And it says, the Lord has turned away the pride or the excellency of Jacob and the excellency of Egypt. The emptiers have emptied. And he's really talking about Assyria, the Assyrian nation, Nineveh, gave Israel a hard time. <laughs> Part of what uh, we read in the first chapter is they're being punished because of how harsh they were on Israel. Assyria conquered the northern kingdom and God used them to punish the northern kingdom for their pride, their idolatry, and all of this. And Sennacherib punished them severely and made life miserable for them. And God says, you went too far. Okay. I gave you the opportunity to capture them, but you went way too far in your punishment. He says, now you're going to be judged. And Babylon was going to come in and conquer Assyria. And we look at this, and God's, God's got a plan. And you know, how many people really realize that God is in charge of the world? He's not just in charge of Christians. He is the God of the entire world. And we've talked about this several times. A lot of people will say Satan can do whatever he wants. No, Satan is on a leash, and he can only do what God allows him to do. Now, with people that aren't his, he gives them a lot more leeway. And he's not looking to hurt many of them, because if he hurts them too bad, they'll end up going to, going to God. So he gives, gives them a lot of stuff. And that's why David in the Psalms goes, why do the heathens rage and do things against God, and they seem to always be successful and not punished? Satan has no need to punish them. As a matter of fact, the more successful they are, he's happy because they won't be trying to look to God in their success. For Christian, he's trying to hurt Christians. And God controls how much can be done. The book of Job is a great example of that. Satan had to go to God and say, and God, you know, and you've got to remember Job was pointed out to by God. Hey Satan, did you consider Job? <laughs> you know, he's a perfect, you know, he's perfect and upright. He hates evil. Have you thought about him? And you know, we you know the story. You know, God, Moses, uh, Moses, yeah. Satan goes, Yeah, I've thought about him, but you've got a wall around him. I can't touch him. And God says, Okay, you can do this much. And he goes back, you can do this much. You can do this much. You just can't kill him. Satan does not have free hand in this world. God is sovereign. And he has to be sovereign for him to be able to make the statement that all things work together for good. Because if he wasn't sovereign, that is a promise he couldn't make. 
Satan is in control, and he says, they went too far. And it says in verse 3, their shields of his mighty men are made red, their valiant are in scarlet, the chariots shall be flaming torches. This is interesting because the Babylonian Empire was known for their red-colored garments. And at the time that this preaching is going on, they're not a strong nation. They're not even an empire yet. And he says, you're going to be conquered by people wearing red. He says their shields would be red. Now, there's some controversy on whether they painted their shields red. Uh, there's many of the ancients painted a red dot in the center of their shield. They're you know, like, go ahead, Archer, shoot the, <laughs> shoot the target type deal. And some people think it might have just been the sun shining off the varnish. But anyway, he says their shields are going to be red. And some say they were red just because of the blood from the battle, and that could very well be. Because when Babylon comes into Nineveh, they destroy the whole city. And they're going to destroy Nineveh. And this is what God is saying. He says, you're going to be, they're going to be conquered by people that wear red. And we've got to think about this. Red was a big deal. <clears throat> wow, I'm losing my voice today. It's going to be fun. <laughs> red was a big deal in that day because it cost a lot of money to, to dye things red. You know, they got their red because they would go get a crocus worm. They would grind it up, and it would have a red tint to it. And you've got to figure, if you're going to dye a lot of clothing with that, you've got to get a lot of worms. <laughs> To get, to get that color, or caterpillar actually more than worms, but you know, took a lot of work. That's why red and purples were usually reserved in most of the nations for royalty because of how hard it was to, to get that color for them. But he says, you're going to be conquered by, by people that wear red. And it says, there's chariots will rage in the streets in the broad streets. Nineveh was known for their broad streets and plazas, which if you ever go Anywhere in Europe or even in, in the Middle East, their streets usually are not broad. <laughs> uh, they might be big enough for a car to go through them. <laughs> and it says, Nineveh has these broad passageways, and these chariots are going to be racing up and down, jostling, jostling each other, and that's exactly what they did. And we look at this, the accuracy of God's word. He says that they will recount their worthies, they will stumble when they walk, they will run to the walls for defense. None of them thought that they were undefeatable. All these nations thought they were undefeatable, and it hasn't changed in our day. We have nations that think they're undefeatable, including the United States. We have Russia that thinks they're undefeatable. We have China that thinks they're undefeatable. I don't want to have to have a war to find out whether any of that's true, but you know, nations have always thought that they were undefeatable. Nineveh, it tells us the next thing, the rivers are going to be open. Nineveh was surrounded by rivers. That was their first line of defense. If they were really going to be in trouble, they just knocked down their bridges, and the enemy couldn't get to them. Then they had thick walls. And in those days, walls were a very big, important uh, defense. And if you had big enough walls, and they had the river that they couldn't get the siege engines into, we had all kinds of problems. Nineveh was a city that should have been virtually undefeatable. And yet God says, they're going to be defeated. Babylon later on was going to have the same situation. The main city of Babylon sat in the middle of the island in the middle of the, of the Euphrates River and was hard to get into. And they were conquered by the Medes and Persians because God said they're going to be conquered by the Medes and Persians. And we see this over and over that when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. What in your life seems to be such a formidable obstacle that you just can't get a victory over? Many people have sins in their life that they just think, I'll never get over this. Whatever that sin might be. <clears throat> you know, and we go, 
God, I just can't get over it. It's too big an obstacle. It's too, too well fortified. God, it's got a great big moat around it. Nobody can get to it. It's got, it's got thick walls. And God says, let me do it. Nineveh would never fall if God didn't make that decision. It was going to fall. Babylon would not fall if it wasn't for God saying it wasn't going to fall. Egypt would not have fallen when they took the people out in the Exodus. Do you realize when they, God took people out of the Exodus that Egypt was the empire of that day? Okay. They covered all of North Africa up into the Middle East, and God says, I'm going to take my people out of this nation. And they did not have the power to fight. And that's when God hit Egypt with ten plagues, and we've gone over the ten plagues, and he destroyed Egypt, literally destroyed their entire economic system. And then when Pharaoh decided to chase them, God, God wiped out the entire army by just drowning them in the Red Sea as they followed, tried to follow out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And God said, okay, here you go. The entire army was wiped out. When God is on your side, nothing can be against you that's going to succeed. We need to be able to be able to take this and say, God, I'm placing this in your hands, whatever it might be. Whatever that obstacle, it might not even be sin. It might be a relationship issue that you have with problems with the, with the people. You know, maybe a family member, and you say, God, I'm putting this in your hands. Most important thing is when you put something in God's hands, don't take it back out of his hands. <laughs> you know, most of us are real good at saying, God, I want you to take care of this. Oh, by the way, God, I think I can take this part of it, and, well, and this part of it, and this part of it. And we walk away taking the entire problem back and saying, I can get it fixed. We need to be able to leave things at God's feet and say, God, I'm just leaving it to you. Now, that's hard to do because God usually doesn't do things the way we want them done. You know, uh, you know, I, I like to play with the Rubik's Cube, and when you get to the very end, to be able to finish the cube, you have to mess up the rest of the cube, or apparently mess up the rest of the cube, and then you bring everything back together and it comes together. And God does that with our life sometimes. We go, God, I've got that part all put together. And God says, well, I've got to do a few things with it. And he, and he twists and, and, and changes our life. We go, oh, God, you're messing with what I had put together. And God says, I know. But you want it fixed? You want it done? Let me have my way. Let me have my way. And he sometimes brings what we think is chaos into our life to get us where he wants us to be. And we've all been there. God, I want to learn to do. <laughs> Put in whatever you want to learn to do. Love people more. Forgive people more. You know, give more. Uh, have more patience, and I can guarantee whatever it is that you want to learn to do, God's going to make it seem like your whole life is falling apart. Because if you want to love people more, he's going to put somebody that's hard to love in your life. And say, okay, let me, let me really m make things difficult for you. you know, you're going to trust in me, and I'm going to give you my love. I'm going to give you my ability to forgive. I'm going to give you my ability to do whatever it might be. And whenever we start moving out for God, troubles happen. And we need to keep this in mind. Nobody in Christianity has ever been promised a rose garden. You know, God didn't say, we're going to put you on a cruise ship and you get to lounge out all the time and you're going to have life real easy and everything's going to be, you're going to be waited on hand and foot. And no, you know, that's not the promise that God gives us when we serve him. We've got to get that out of our mind. In Western Christianity, we have this mindset that I get saved and everything's going to be good. Well, it is going to be good in heaven. It is going to be good because God's in charge. He is going to give us peace that passes understanding. He is going to give us comfort when we trust in him. But life can be very hard. Because God's saying, do you trust me? 
God's not going to make it so that we trust our own flesh. Nineveh trusted their own flesh. So they we can, our, we can get through this. Our, our, our city is important. Nobody can conquer us. And Babylon comes right in and wipes them out. Destroys the, God just opens up the rivers and, you know, they cross the rivers, they cross the gates, they destroy the palace, they destroy, the, they, they destroy Nineveh. Why? Because God says it's going to happen. God will destroy our strongholds. We memorize that verse that, the, that God wants every imagination in our heart taken captive. And we have the word that will destroy the strongholds of sin. But it is God that does the work. We just have to let him do it. And sometimes that's hard. You know, I've been there, done that, and you've all done it. It's very hard to put your full trust in God. Saying, God, I just want to trust you. Because if you're anything like me, and I know many of you are, you just say, God, uh, I can take care of some of this. It's our human nature. It's our flesh. You know, I can take care of some of this, God. You know, I don't have to give you all of it. The only problem is, if you do that to God, he says, fine, you want to take care of it, you can take care of it. If you want me to take care of it, I'll take care of it. But it's not going to be a two-way decision. He's not going to say, okay, you do your part and I'll do mine. There's an old statement in, in America that says God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, and it's not true. God helps those who surrender their life to him. Does that mean, you know, and we've talked about this, it doesn't mean you just sit on your butt and do nothing. You know, when God gives you the other things to do, you go do it. But he says, you surrender. My, and my, one of my favorite verses, Galatians 2.20, For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. It is very important. He wants to crucify us. He's not saying you go out and do as much as you can, and when you've run out of what you can do, I'll take over. Because usually when we do that, we've messed things up so bad that it's going to take longer. Remember we say all the time there's consequences to what we do. When we do things the wrong way, there are consequences. Always going to be consequences. When we do things the right way, there are consequences too. We just like to call them rewards. <laughs> okay, and they are. When we do things the way God wants, he'll reward us. And there's consequences for doing it right. There's always these things that the consequences for doing wrong. And those things that we do for the wrong are sometimes very long-term issues. Uh, that we end up paying a long-term price. If we've done things wrong, we have to, to deal with them. But we look at this and say, God says, turn your problems over to him. That goes against our flesh. Our flesh just wants to do things and find some way to make something happen. When, you, when you're witnessing to somebody and they go, well, how do I get saved? You confess your sins to God, you repent, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and they go, that's too easy, it's too hard. I go, well, obviously it's not too easy, you can't do it. You know, you're looking for something complicated, and it's not complicated. We want to be able to say, I've got to do something to prove to God that I deserve heaven. Well, if that's your idea, you won't deserve heaven, you'll end up in hell. Because we can't do anything that will deserve God's love. We can't do anything that will deserve heaven. And that's why Jesus came. If, he, if we could deserve heaven without Jesus, he, Jesus wouldn't have died. He says, I've come because you cannot do it. What does it take to get to hell? One sin. And everybody that I've ever met has done a lot more than one sin. Most people have done one sin a day at least. You know, probably one sin an hour, one sin, one sin, at least one sin an hour. 
especially when you take it to Jesus' way and the way we think is sinful. You know, we look at something with lust. We have this desire for something that we're not supposed to have. We get angry with somebody. And God says, if you're angry without cause, it's, it's sin. It's so easy to commit sin. And God says, one sin sends you to hell. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so that we could go to heaven. Faith alone. Good works are going to get us rewards, but it's not even to be done for the reward's sake. <laughs> it's just because, God, I love you. I want to follow you. And it says, Nineveh is old in verse 8. You know, that means it's ancient, and they shall flee and stand and, and take their defense. And Babylon was going to come in and take everything away from them. And Babylon did just that. They came in and took all the gold, silver, bronze, took the, took the palace apart, brick by brick, stone by stone, and conquered them, wiped out a nation that thought they were really strong. Be aware that God can make things happen in our life. Have faith. Walk by faith. But it is really getting a full trust for God and who he is. Because it is sometimes very difficult. When God says a promise in the Bible, we need to be able to grab hold of it. He says that we are sons and daughters of the king. Can you imagine what that really means? You know, have you ever said, I just can't do something? In our flesh, we can't. When God crucifies it and he's working out of us, we can. We are the bride of Christ. That means we're royalty in, God, in, in God's eyes. And we've talked about this. God doesn't see us where we're at. Because one thing we all know is none of us are perfect in this room, and we know we're not. What does God say about us? We're perfect. Because we are in Christ, he says we're perfect. How can he say that? Because he already knows what we will be, and he sees us as we will be. When we get our glorified, perfect bodies, he says, this is my perfect child. How does he treat us now? As if we're perfect. He knows that there's a long place before we get that glorified body, but he looks and says, these are my perfect children. Yeah. And that's his attitude. What did he tell Joe, uh, Satan when he talked about Job? This is my, he is a perfect, upright man that hates evil. Was Job a perfect, upright man? Well, he was an upright man. He was offering God sacrifices and all that, but was he perfect? Nobody's ever been perfect. So we know he wasn't perfect. But God's testimony of him was, he's a perfect, righteous man. Why? Because he knew Job at the end. God knows what we will be. And he calls us by what we will be. We need to keep this in mind. Who are we? One of Paul's favorite statements is to be in Christ. When we're a Christian, we've accepted Jesus Christ, we are placed in Christ. Literally baptized into Christ. We are buried and submerged into him and he changes who we are. And the example we've talked about is, you know, if you are somebody who likes to make pickles, how do you make pickles? You take your, your whatever vegetable you're wanting to pickle, and you put it in your vinegar brine. What does the vegetable do to become a pickle? Sits there, right? It doesn't do a thing. How do we become more like Christ? We get put in Christ, and we stay there. We stay in Christ, and he pickles us for a better, you know, you know, changes us into who he is. And that's what we find. If you're in Christ and you find, look back over your life and you go, a year later you go, wow, you know, a year ago I would never have acted that way if somebody did that, or I'd have never done this for somebody. 
What does that mean? You've been in Christ and he is changing you to be more like him. You stay in Christ and decades later, you're going to be more like God. Will we ever be completely like God? No, he's too infinite and too perfect and too, too different than we are. We start way down too low to ever be completely like him. But he's going to be changing us. And as I've shared with you, I really believe we're going to be changing for all of eternity because God is always greater than we are. And he's going to be saying, let me show you another aspect of my, let me show you another part of me. Let me show you another part of me. Why? Because he's infinite. He is infinitely above anything that we are. And he's going to be able to say, let me just surprise you one more time. You thought you, thought you knew who I was? You thought you knew everything about me? Let me show you something new. For all of eternity, he'll be showing us something new about himself. Yeah. And that's something in our brains we can't even compre- comprehend. We can't comprehend eternity, much less, much less a God who will always be new for eternity. He's never going to get old. He's never going to get dull. We're never going to go, well, I know exactly what God's going to do in this situation. One thing I've learned about God is he likes to step outside of the box I expect. When I think, God, you're going to do something this way, God is real good about doing it some other way just to, to show that he's God. Jesus, every time he healed, did something different. Now, have you ever thought about, think about the different ways Jesus healed blindness. One time he spoke on it. One time he spit in the guy's eyes. One time he made mud, mud pack and put it on his eyes. You know, kept doing things different. Why did he do that? Probably to make people understand there's not one way to do things with God. You know, we, get, we get stuck in our ways and sometimes saying, God, this is the way it's going to be done. This is the way you've done it to, in the past. This is the way you're, you're going to do it in the future. We have a pretty big book where God does something different almost every time. Now, be ready to watch God and say, God, what is it you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? How do you want me to act? How are you going to fix this situation? What a boring life it would be if God always did the same thing every single time. It'd be pretty easy to follow him. Well, all I know, I've got to go right over here because that's where God's going to be because that's where he's always at. And God says, no, sometimes I'm over here, sometimes I'm over there, sometimes back here. Live by faith. If we just live saying, God, I just know what you're going to do. Well, the problem with that is we're not God. We'll never know what he's going to do. And we've got to keep in mind that he is God. He's going to do what he wants to do. He is sovereign. And every time we think we've got him figured out, he's going to show us that we don't even have the beginning clue of where, what he's going to do. Because it's all by faith. And we need to learn to walk by faith, to live by faith. And, you know, I, I, I have agreed with everybody that has ever said it. I would love to just have God sitting on my shoulder saying, do this, do that, say this, say that. That would be so easy. You know, just right there, in piece of my ear or in my brain, whatever. You know, go here, talk to this person, say this, do this. You know, that would make life so much easier. God doesn't work that way. He's not looking for robots. If he wanted robots, he could have created robots. He could have given us no free will, no desire to do anything on our own. He, he was more than able to do that. And, and when you talk to people, sometimes people say, well, there's evil in the world. God, that proves that God's not strong enough to take care of evil. No, it just proves that God's given us free will and there's consequences for our free will. Because he is strong enough, but how would he do it? And I've challenged people. I'm going, we, well, you, you want God to end all, all these problems and all this evil? I'll... I'll Give a prayer, and God, I would pray to ask God to have you not have a free will to do what you want. 
I've never had anybody that has that opposition take me up on that prayer. They go, oh, no, I don't, I don't want that. I go, that's the only way that God would stop evil, is to take away our free will so that nobody could do anything that had consequences to it. And, you know, the world likes to throw up excuses. You know, and we've shared this. If you're witnessing anybody, challenge their excuses. <laughs> you know, challenge them. I mean, that's how I challenge that one. If somebody says the Bible is full of contradictions, challenge them. Say, give me one contradiction. They're going to pick one of five, and they're all easily answered. If they, if they know, if they've actually studied and have any, have any study, they're going to pick one of about five apparent contradictions, and they're all easily answered. But usually what they'll say, well, there's just so many of them. Now give me one. <laughs> you know, give me one so we can talk about specifics, not generalities. Challenge these people when they give you these excuses because that's all they are. They're so used to Christians backing off and saying, well, I don't have an answer. Peter says, be ready to give an answer to everyone that asks what you believe and why. We need to be ready to be able to explain, this is what I believe and this is why I believe it. Because Christianity is very rational. It's not jump off, you know, go up to the Grand Canyon and just step off the edge. It's not what God's asking us to do. He says, here are the facts. You know, we can show that Jesus died. It's pretty easy to do from the scriptures and from the records. We can show that creation is true. We can show that evolution is totally false. We can show lots of things that the Bible talks about and be able to give very strong evidences. It takes us being studiers of his word, studiers of what we believe. An unexamined life is not worth living is a very famous statement, and it really is. Paul said to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There are many people who say they're Christians but aren't walking with God, have no relationship with God. We need that relationship with him because it's important. Without that relationship, we don't know that we know Jesus. If we're not in Christ, we can't say that I know that, I, that my prayer was a complete prayer. Because we are to trust in him. And that means to put all of our belief and trust in him and not have any doubts. I have put all my trust. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, I have no future at heaven. If some other religion is right, then I don't go to heaven because I put all my trust in Jesus. I'm not hedging my bets. I'm not putting it anywhere else. All of our trust has to be in Jesus or we don't have the right faith with him. And you know what? We've shared this with you. All the things he's done for me in the last 48 years, I know that he's true. I know there's a heaven because of what he's doing and what he's given me and the peace and the relationship I have with him on this world. I know that he is who he says he is. And I also know that even if there wasn't a heaven, I've missed out on nothing with the joy and peace he's given me. But because of all the joy and peace he's given me, I know that he's also true for the future. Do you know him that well? Have you made that decision to follow him that, in that way? This is something that's important. Only you know whether that's your, that's your place. That I know that I know that he's who he says he is. And that's where we have to be with him. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you. Lord, if there's anybody listening online that doesn't know you, or even in this room that doesn't know you, we ask today that they will confess their sin to you, repent, and accept you as their Lord and Savior and the blood that you shed covering their sin. We ask you, Lord, to just be with us. Lord, for those of us who don't necessarily follow you, we ask that you 
bring us deeper and deeper in you so that we can be changed to be more like you. From glory to glory, you're changing us to perfect your image in us. Lord, we thank you for that. Help each person who's listening, help each person that hears this message to decide to follow you. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.